this is Aliyah Baluch. Uh, today we're going to discuss uh, 2019 infection prevention updates from a clinical infectious disease perspective. I originally presented this for the Florida Professionals in Infection Control 44th Annual Education Conference. So without further ado, we'll go forward. I have no conflicts of interest to disclose. So I just wanted to share this because as the field of infectious diseases is changing, this was part of a pitch I gave to the hospital to help them understand how does infectious disease work, especially in a tertiary cancer hospital and that no different than how chemotherapy is becoming personalized and precise, so is infectious disease care. That for example, we for our hospital, we have six people working for infection prevention, infection control, that we're blessed to have three full-time um, ID pharmacists working with us to take care of patients or optimize patient care, as well as to do antimicrobial stewardship. Uh, the ID research, technically, we don't have anyone 100% dedicated to ID research, but there's great potential. As well as in the micro lab that we have the lab manager, we have different staffing during the work week versus the weekend, but we're very blessed to have a very strong technological platform, including the use of products like the Molotov, as well as Accelerate. For us, we use Accelerate technologies specifically for gram negatives. And then in the clinical perspective that we have approximately, excuse me, two and a half to three full-time ID doctors. Um, to be technical, we're looking to grow, but that this is what we have at this point in time. Again, especially like the patients that I see, I have to take in consideration they went through malignant then came to transplant, maybe went back to malignant and then came back to me for say immunotherapy like CAR-T. They have to look at all the different bugs they had along the way to try to do this personalized and precise infectious disease care. So the goals of this uh, discussion is a kind of a miniature history from the WHO and the CDC. And then we're going to review isolation categories for infection prevention, especially in the context of what does microbiology help us, clinical and CLSI correlations. Please note, this is 2019. Things do change. So if you're listening to this in 10 years, it might no longer be up to date. Subject matter is, as always, as I'm the number two for stewardship, that this is a huge component of what I do. So stewardship at Moffitt for improving antimicrobial use and reducing resistance team approach, um, that this is stewardship at my particular facility. So in terms of the miniature history, that according to the WHO, what is IPC, Infection Prevention and Control? It's a scientific approach and practical solution designed to prevent harm caused by infection to patient and health workers. It is to both. It utilizes knowledge of infectious diseases, epidemiology of a particular facility, whether or not it's inpatient or outpatient, social science, and it integrates issues also from patient safety, quality of care, trying to have specific goals in mind. So what are we trying to do? We're trying to improve hand hygiene, prevent surgical site infections, that is trying to combat antimicrobial resistance, improve injection safety, decrease the burden of healthcare associated infections, in specific, because this is now World Health Organization, specifically Ebola response and recovery, 
that we're trying to have capacity building on a countrywide scale, prevent sepsis and catheter-associated bloodstream infections, and prevent catheter-associated UTIs. This is a very long list, but very worthwhile endeavors. The CDC goals and objectives is again, the same type of issues. Infection control prevents or stops the spread of infections in healthcare settings. The site, being the CDC website, has an overview of how infections are spread, ways to prevent the spread, and detailed recommendations by the type of healthcare setting. Because of course, if you're inpatient, then you have kind of different rules and regulations and even expectations compared to the outpatient setting. And that if you look for guidelines, the last updated guideline was 2007 guideline for isolation precautions preventing transmission of infectious agents in healthcare settings, but it has actually been updated in July of 2019. So, what isolation is even utilized? How do you pick this? It depends on the transmission of infection or your infectious particles. And that you might have to use combination of different styles of isolation for any particular infection, whether it is contact. So this is direct contact, trying to decrease the exposure of blood from person A to person B via a open wound. Indirect being something like person A in stool to person B. Droplets, airborne. And then we'll go over them in further detail. So standard isolation. Initially recommended in the, in the first rendition of the guidelines in 1996, standard is referencing hand hygiene, the use of personal protective equipment as needed, not for everybody, as needed. So like if you are gonna, the patients peed on themselves or urinate on themselves there, so they're gonna be wet. So you need to have then the protection that protects you against the liquid of the urine. Safe injection practices, safe handling of potentially contaminated equipment or surfaces in the patient environment, and specific etiquette for when you cough, sneeze, cough in your elbow, not into your hand type of scenario. Contact isolation. This is for bugs like MRSA and VRE and MDR, depending on where you are. One of the discussion points that came up on the day of the conference was that some of the facilities are no longer isolating for certain organisms and they have not seen an increase in their incidence or transmission in the hospital. Unfortunately, this is a little bit of a gray area. So for the means of this presentation, we will say contact ISO for these three organisms. So MRSA, the drug of choice, this is your vancomycin. You should not use it though if you have an elevated MIC to that drug, then it kind of renders it almost clinically impossible to get to a good level in the blood. Daptomycin, linezolid, ceftaroline, televancin. For VRE, drug of choice, it depends on your susceptibilities, but it could be ampicillin, dapto, ceftaroline, linezolid, there used to be quinoprism, delphoprism, but it's in recent times lost its FDA approval for this indication. What about diagnostics for MRSA and VRE? So both of these are by PCR. And then in addition for VRE, you could do an ID and susceptibility, and you're therefore looking for that MIC greater than two because that increases your risk for therapeutic failure. 
This is just a snapshot of, in theory, what it could look like on a chart um, if you're using Cerner to be like MRSA negative, VRE negative. Do remember that in general, we used to do a lot more culture, but it requires a lot more time, hands-on time, follow-up time, just time in general. And so as technology has progressed, we've changed over to PCRs as well as multiplex PCRs. The problem with multiplex PCR is that though you have more bugs that are being identified, do understand that their sensitivity specificity can drop slightly. Um, when you go to more than one PCR within the same sample. For us, we utilize the BioFire platforms a lot. So for example, the Film Array is a very convenient program that you have the loading station, you put the pouch, you put a little bit of hydration, you put the sample, then you put it in your machine. And then approximately after it runs the two different PCRs in approximately an hour or so, you can have the results as an example here, the respiratory panel, which does include a few bacteria. So please don't say respiratory viral panel, that it has 20 targets and it spits out the answer relatively quickly. Rapid antigen detection test, an example would be RSV. So if you compare an RADT versus a reference standard, um, that the pool sensitivity is 80%, specificity is 97%, it's higher in children compared to adults, that these are studies by industry tended to overestimate sensitivity. This is just one of many different tests. Again, at my facility, we tend to only use the multiplex PCRs. We technically do not use an RADT. In terms of contact isolation and multi-drug resistant organisms, the goal is that this is designed for putting patients in isolation if they're resistant to three or more drugs. This is three or more classes of drugs. For extensively drug-resistant organisms, uh, these are isolates non-susceptible to at least one drug in all classes, but two or fewer. Pen-resistant, which unfortunately I have seen, I've been seeing since I was in training. These are gram-negative rod isolates that are not susceptible to all antimicrobials currently available. So then which organisms tend to accumulate resistance patterns like is going on a style? This tends to be the Enterobacteraceae. Pseudomonas can do this. And unfortunately, Acinobacter is kind of the poster child for essentially collecting these different resistance patterns. Beta-lactamases, this is just kind of a brief overview of different resistance patterns. Class A, beta-lactamases. These ones include our ESBLs um, that to be technical, CLSI recommend to stop relaying the ESBL status from the micro lab. But the problem is we use this a lot from an infection prevention perspective to see like who needs to go in isolation. So then you have to actually put on your thinking cap and look at specifically ceftriaxone resistance patterns and then that will help you kind of indirectly discern that this is an ESBL type of infection. And then the issue becomes then do we isolate or not because definitely it's very hard or laborious for your infection prevention group to review every culture looking at ceftriaxone susceptibilities to see if the patient meets criteria for isolation or not. 
The drug of choices currently for ESBLs is a carbapenem like meropenem, ceftalozine, tazobactam, ceftazidine, abibactam, meropenem, voriborbactam. In terms of other beta-lactamases, there are the serine carbapenemases like KPCs. For them, these unfortunately confer resistance to all beta-lactams. The drug of choice for this becomes the combination drug ceftazavi, meropenem, vaporbactam, and polymyxins. In terms of class B metallo-beta-lactamases, zinc metalloenzymes like the NDM, these hydrolyze all penicillin, cephalosporins, and carbapenems, but not astreonam. If there's a concomitant ESBL, though, now you have a problem because the astreonam will be destroyed by the ESBL. The theoretical drug of choice becomes ceftazavi versus an ESBL, for example, and your astreonam against the MBL. In terms of class C or AMC beta-lactamases, this is resistance to cephalosporins. Drug of choice then is a carbapenem, ceftazavi, meropenem, vaporbactam. In terms of class D oxacillinases, like oxa-23-like, this is a heterogeneous group of beta-lactamase inhibitors. This is a plasmid-related resistance pattern seen in Turkey in the Middle East. Drug of choice, possibly ceftazavi, polymyxins. So when we look at this as an example ESBL, you can see ampicillin resistant, cephalosporin resistant, including ceftriaxone and cipro resistant and bactrim resistant. But then you would be like, well, is this an MDR? That would be the first question. Or is this an XDR? Or is this a pan resistant? Since there's some S's there, obviously it's not pan resistant. More importantly, what would be considered the best mechanism of resistance? You look here and you see the arrow, which you know should always cue in. This is what you do look at that you have resistance to ceftriaxone, kind of leaning towards that this is an ESBL, and that is your most likely mechanism of resistance. And therefore, you would, for example, at my facility, you would call the the micro lab and say, "Can you unreveal the carbapenem to make sure is it sensitive, and therefore can you use it for treatment of this E. coli?" Special contact. So uh, especially at my facility, Clostridium difficile is given special contact as well as norovirus. The idea being these are contact isolation patients that we're telling you, you need to wash your hands in order to get out of the room safely. C. difficile was originally isolated in stools in 1935 in neonates. By 1977, it was identified as the most commonly identified cause of antimicrobial associated diarrhea and more importantly, pseudomembranous colitis. Risk factors tend to be older age, hospital exposure, antimicrobials, especially in the previous 90 days, acid suppressants, environmental contamination. There is the important thing about NAP1. This is the hypervirulent, hyperproducer version of C. difficile. It's toxin A is literally 16 times normal for a C. diff and toxin B can be 23 times normal, the amount of a standard C. diff case. I like this just as to show that there are many things that increase your risk for infection with C. diff. Any anti-acid 
Yes, technically PPIs get a worse wrap, but that's just an adjusted ri uh, risk ratio of 1.6 compared to 1.4. The fact is, it just makes it higher. And then in terms of antibiotics, yes, clindamycin gets the worst wrap because it's 31.8 adjusted risk ratio, but you can see even macrolides or tetracyclines, these, all these drugs increase your risk. It's just about which ones are worse than others. I like this one because especially in this day and age where we've integrated the two-step testing for C. diff, that there's definitely a known grade or continuum about C. diff that there's a lot of patients that are colonized with C. diff, then there are some that have infection, and then there's a small number within that that get fulminant colitis. IDC guidelines that were updated in 2018 the testing algorithm was updated to a two-step test, though not all hospitals are exactly the same in terms of which two-step test, but it's definitely recommended in 2018 to do a two-step test. Then you could use a stool toxin test as part of a multi-step algorithm, and these are multiple different examples. The NAT alone should not be the main way that you're testing for C. diff. Please do not repeat testing, especially within the initial seven days that you consider daily sporocytal cleaning. This is definitely paramount and a cornerstone in an environmental services that works with infection prevention to try to decrease the toxin load in a patient's room. Terminal cleaning, consider a sporocytal agent plus other measures to prevent C. diff infection when there are especially high rates or outbreaks or if there's evidence of repeated cases of C. diff in the same room. This is where, for example, some facilities, we will UV the room upon discharge to decrease the risk of infections going from the person who was there before to whoever takes over the room. This is, for example, how we do ours. We do the C. diff PCR and then a C. diff toxin. And if only the PCR is positive, we still put the patient on isolation. We would try to only treat for those that both tests are positive. Norovirus, this is one of the significant etiologies for gastroenteritis that has a lot of nausea and vomiting along with the diarrhea illness. Incubation period is 12 to 48 hours. Clinical course is 12 to 60 hours. Unfortunately, definitely can be much longer in bone marrow transplant and cellular therapy patients. Key issues from an infection prevention perspective is only a low inoculum is needed to actually spread your infection like wildfire. We're talking about less than 100 viral particles. That it tends to be resistant to standard cleaning and disinfectants. And that there's insufficient data to determine the efficacy of alcohol-based hand rubs when the hands are not visibly soiled. For us, like I mentioned before, that we just tend to put these patients also in special contacts, so then you have to use soap and water. With the change in technologies, we have implemented the GIPCR panel. This is just an example of what is within the panel. This is also another biofire panel. And you can see there are certain bacteria as well as certain viruses. It definitely decreased our turnaround time that was needed to get a test positive or negative for adenovirus or norovirus and all these other ones. In terms of special contact, again, the idea is that it's contact isolation plus soap and water on the way out of the room. 
this is trying to push the whole hand hygiene that we put flyers over the hand sanitizer when these patients are in special contact so that they have a reminder a visual reminder not to use it and then as mentioned before for our kind of high high risk patients meaning malignant and the bmt sector that we also do terminal cleans on those rooms in terms of droplet isolation This is influenza AB, RSV, human meningovirus, rhinovirus, enterovirus, anovirus, pneumonia is very dangerous and very lethal, Bordetella pertussis, and Neisseria meningitidis. These all meet the requirements for droplet, including group A strep. These infectious particles are transmitted from person A to person B. They tend to only travel short distance. How are these droplets generated? One sneezes, coughs, talks, suctioning of the ET tube, and then generating these droplets, doing CPR. This is what a respiratory panel with the biofire looks like in our system. Um, all of those come together, including the mycoplasma and some of the other bacterias. This is a really neat graphic kind of just reminding us what bugs tend to be upper versus what bugs tend to be lower. Sometimes the teams are like, oh, the patient has rhinovirus. I'm look, look, that's not a reason to have ground glass in the lungs because it's like less than 5% incidence of rhinovirus, enterovirus that can enter the lungs. So please go look for another infection or another etiology. In terms of droplets, how far can a droplet go? Average is less than or equal to three feet, though in theory, there are certain infections that are thought to go farther. Droplet size, if it is greater than five microns and size is smaller, then you should be looking really at airborne. Isolation protective clothing, this is droplet mask and contact isolation. For meningitis rule out, we will do then also a lumbar puncture, and this is a meningitis encephalitis panel. For us, thankfully, if this comes back negative, then we can usually DC the isolation that's required at that time. A special word about bone marrow transplant in the context of infection prevention. With fax certification, which is traditionally required for all bone marrow transplant units, that you have to do screening for respiratory symptoms every single day for all the people that come from outside. So what I would like to tell my patients is like, you know, you're a patient, you, we ask you symptoms and you have a band on your wrist. For all of us staff workers, we've been flu vaccinated or we're required to wear a mask. And therefore, for all family or friends that are visiting, they all get a verbal questionnaire and then they get to wear a nice sticker with the, day, the name of the week on their chest. And then when they wake up the next morning, they get to get another sticker after they do the screening all over again. It is the way we interpret it is with the sticker that again, that the front desk staff or the nursing section that's closest to you screens you and then you get a sticker with the date on it. If positive, then to be honest, a family member either gets escorted off the floor or is refused entry to the floor until you have symptom relief and you're able to be assessed that you're safe to come back on the floor. On Mondays, the bone marrow transplant group, as well as myself, receive an email about the previous week's respiratory trends to help us re-stratify what do we need to do this week. There is a tier system in place to help prevent an outbreak during the next respiratory season. 
Moving on to airborne isolation, this is for mycobacterium tuberculosis, measles, chickenpox, smallpox. And to be technical, yes, I have seen a survivor um, of smallpox. It was pretty significant about the scarring that is left behind. Airborne isolation, these are droplet nuclei, meaning they are super small. They're desiccated, suspended droplets. These techniques, you have to have a negative pressure room, such that, for example, you open the door and all the infectious particles are sucked in the room. So that way, nothing goes out into the hallway where there are potentially um, people that are at risk. Then you have to be fit tested with an N95 mask or higher level respiratory while in the room. Ensure that the patient who's infected has to wear a mask when outside of the room at all times. Like I tell my patients when they're being ruled out for TB, no matter what, nobody is allowed to look at your mouth. This I snagged, um, as you can see from the bottom left-hand corner uh, where the picture is from, just comparing and, control, uh, comparing and contrasting rubiola being measles compared to German measles rubella compared to roseola and phantom about these fevers and rashes. Measles, average incubation period is 14 days, but can be up to 21. The contagious period is four days prior to the rash, finishes four days post-rash. The rash is face, neck, and upper chest. Over two to three days, the rash spreads over the entire body. You require the special airborne isolation, highly contagious. If you are non-immune, 90% of those people will get the infection. Unfortunately, it can survive one hour on contaminated surfaces. Overall incidence is 30% with complications with this infection, whether it's just an ear infection, pneumonia, mediastinum, and mediastinal emphysema, diarrhea. These things are obviously all no good. Serious issues could be secondary bacterial infection like pneumonia, blindness, DIC, reactivation of latent TB, formidable complications, acute encephalitis that has rapid progression to death in 15% of encephalitis patients, 25% of these survivors have permanent deficits, subacute sclerosing panencephalitis, this can lead to myoclonic seizures, burst suppression, chronic progressive and always fatal infection of the CNS, and prior to the measles vaccine, you can see the incidence of this horrible complication. In this, these are reasons enough for me to be a huge proponent of the MMR vaccine. CBC and DIF, you'll see leukopenia and lymphopenia. You need to send off acute and convalescent sera that you can actually essentially measure the measles virus from skin lesions and that you need to isolate for minimum four days after the onset of rash because you're A, waiting for results, and B, you're still contagious. Unfortunately, there's very little in terms of therapy, supportive care, vitamin A. There is a consideration for ribavirin, but it is not exactly clear. It is not FDA approved for this. The mortality among those infected is 0.2. Malnutrition, and, and then you get infected, it could be as high as 10%. 
miscellaneous addendums to the CDC document. There's mentions about measles, VZV, post-exposure prophy, some other things as mentioned there. But really the issue is what's in the graphic about this is Ben. He is immunocompromised and cannot have live vaccines, but thanks to the community immunity, he is protected. But if you don't get enough vaccinated people, you lose this herd immunity, which is very dangerous. In summary, guidelines are living documents. They need participants, they need input, and they need critical thinking when implemented because they cannot put every scenario in a guideline. That the guideline that's posted, especially on the CDC website, is to be used by infection control staff, epidemiologists, administrators, nurses, providers, and persons who are creating these robust infection prevention programs all over the world, all over the U.S. I will say, this is just acknowledging the people who helped me along the way, Fran, Dr. Mandel, Dr. Sennett, Dr. Williams, Dr. Green, Dr. Humar and Dr. Kumar who helped me when I was in Canada. Dr. Eisen is always readily available for my questions as well as my current mentor, Dr. Nader. This is just also to give a shout out to my colleagues for infection prevention, for ID pharmacy, ID clinical, the micro lab, all of my colleagues that we all work together very hard to make the best stewardship program available at my local facility. And this is about teaching resources. And if you have any questions.